Well, let's open our Bibles to, for the first time, the book of Matthew. It's going to take us a while to get there because uh, when asked today what chapters, um, I said, let's just call it an introduction to Matthew. I want to get through chapters 1 and 2. But there's so much that has happened between the closing verses of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, 400 years passing, but because um, Daniel is such a significant book uh, in the Old Testament, and when we study Daniel, of course, in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, basically they're both giving us the same uh, history, most of it fulfilled, where he talks about Babylon, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, the Roman, and um, a lot of that is going to take place uh, during, like, the, the Old Testament closes with uh, the Medo-Persian Empire being the dominating power in the world. So as we get to the end of the book of Malachi, um, we're about 80 years where Xerxes is going to um, um, be the man in power. So try going back 400 years where the last person to speak was Malachi. But much of what Daniel the prophet spoke about is fulfilled during this 400-year period of time. We're going to have the Medo-Persian Empire. We're going to have Alexander the Great and his empire. And when Jesus finally comes around, we're going to have the Romans then being in power. They're not even going to be speaking Hebrew um, um, because of the influence of the of the culture during that time. So to do this really justice, I want to take a little bit of time. That's been a lot of time, but enough so that you can see that there's a lot that went on, a lot, a lot that especially Daniel talked about that uh, is written in Daniel, but history gives us an account of um, of what took place from. 400 B.C. until 4 B.C., which is the date that we believe that the Lord uh, actually uh, was was born. We're really not sure about that. Um, Egypt is going to be a, a, a power during this time, during this interval. We're going to be seeing a big shift from power from the east to the west, from Asia to Europe, from the Medo-Persian to Greece. Um, and finally, when we do get to the New Testament in the book of Matthew, oh, these empires have come and gone. Medo-Persians come and gone. Alexander the Great has come and gone. And now we find ourselves with the Romans being in power. So in about, oh, this was really be the last bid before we find... Um, uh, in about 333 B.C. So we're going about 70 years after Malachi. Um, we find that Daniel records this goat, and it's symbolic, of course, but it's a reference to this great horn. And he's very powerful, and he's very fast. And this horn is none other than Alexander the Great. He is victorious over the empire that would have been there when Daniel would have been in power with the Medo-Persians. Remember, Daniel started with 
King Nebuchadnezzar, as a young man, was 17. He was there for the whole 70 years. So he watched the Roman, I mean the Babylonian Empire, come and go. And he was there, we read in Daniel, during the third year of Darius, or during the first year of Darius. Well, these are Medes and Persians. So he actually had a very, very high level, certainly the second most powerful man in the Babylonian Empire, and also in the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, I'm going to make a point of that when we talk about the three wise men who came from Persia. And But, again, the history part of this, let me say right off the get-go that this is not a part of scriptures, but it is a part of history. Um, we can't be dogmatic about it being factual, but uh, much has been written about it in history that we're pretty sure of, uh, of these events. So about 333 B.C., we have uh, Alexander the Great. Uh, one year later, in 332, everywhere that Alexander went, he overwhelmingly destroyed what was ever in front of him. That is until he got to Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem, he was shown the prophecy of Daniel, which spoke of him. Now, can you imagine that? You open the Bible, and he says, here, let me show you something in, that was written hundreds of years before you existed, and is talking about you. And when Alexander the Great was shown the prophecy of Daniel, which spoke of him, he spared Jerusalem. Um, there, I've read other commentaries that actually say he saw a vision of the people that would be greeting him in their ceremonial robes. I don't know if that's true or not. We do know it's the fact that Alexander the Great spared Jerusalem, one of the few cities that he ever did that to. And then in 323, um, Alexander finally died way over in Persia. Apparently, he had intended to move the seat of his empire there. Then the world empire of both east and west was divided among his four generals. He died at 30 years old, probably the greatest military genius that probably ever lived. And they asked him, who is going to inherit your kingdom? And his answer was, give it to the strong. And um, he had four generals, One of them was uh, called Ptolemy. Um, He's he's famous. He took that part, what we would call today, which would be Egypt. And then it was Seleucus, which we would call today modern-day Syria. Uh, He attempted to take Judah. So here we have Judah, sort of a battleground, right in between Syria and Egypt. These guys are going at it. They want conquest, Ptolemy and Seleucus, and they got <laughs> poor Israel right in between Egypt and Syria. And it's the same way today. I mean, we, uh, we're watching um, the latest news that I'm hearing right now um, is Iran putting as many boots on the ground as they can to build this bridge from Iran all the way to the Mediterranean. And they're talking about it quite a bit. And uh, just a sidetrack, 
pray for Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, he likes Trump, and Trump likes him. And um, the thing is, back home in in, um, in Jerusalem, he has a, a big problem on his hands. And that is, as much as I like him, affectionately people call him Bibi, I call him Bibi, Matter of fact, years ago, when 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 the Bush uh, when uh, the Clintons were in power and he was prime minister once before, I used to tell our guides. I'd say, "I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I will give you Bill Clinton. You give us Bibi, and I'll throw in Hillary for free." <laughs> they, for some reason, love Clinton, and I said, "Deal, and we'll give you Hillary to boot. Just you can have her." And um, But pray, because this is what's happening. In Israel, everybody has to serve in the army for two years, male and female, orthodox or non-orthodox. This is a big problem, because right now, in the Knesset, the orthodox Jewish people have um, a lot of power. And they have a lot of votes. And they're saying no more of our Orthodox Jewish people are going to go to war. And we got the votes to stop it. And so that's what's going on right now back home. Now, this is um, if you're not Orthodox and you're an Israeli citizen, loyal to your country, willing to send your 18-year-old for two years, everybody does it. And they're saying, Orthodox, you're no different. So there's a big battle going on. And, and Bibi's caught right in the middle of it. And uh, so that's what's, that's what's going on as we speak right, right now. I don't see it as a good sign because um, um, uh, Trump and Netanyahu are, are getting along so uh, well together. Back to our history between uh, 400 years. So we get to um, this back and forth between Ptolemy. Remember, these are the four generals. I've only given you two so far, Ptolemy and Seleucus. Then there was, um, in 2003, so we're halfway through the uh, 400-year period, there's a man named Antiochus the Great. He took Jerusalem, and Judah passed under the influence of Syria. Now, in 170, so we're about 30 years later, there's a man named Antioch Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, I always get corrected, took Jerusalem, and he defiled the temple, and this is where I want to bring Daniel into our study, because this happened during this period of time. So I'm going to actually have you turn to the book of Daniel. I want you to go to chapter 8, pick it up in verse... Pick it up in verse 9. And what we have in transition here is the falling away of one empire and the rising of another. And in verse 9 it says, And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And uh, we find here this is a reference to the male goat. Actually, I need to back up for this to make sense. Let's go back to verse 5. 
He says, I was considering the male goat coming from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns. That would be the Medes and the Persians. And I was standing beside the river and, and ran at him with fierce power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with great rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Of course, this is symbolism. We have animals here, and um, the, the one with the two horns is the Medes and the Persians, and the one with the one horn is Alexander the Great. Verse 8 says, Therefore the male goat, Alexander, grew very great, But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in its place four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, critics of the Bible refute the book of Daniel because it's so accurate. They say it has to be written after time because now he's observing history and simply writing it down. He was that spot on with it. Well, we can prove otherwise. This was all written um, before these events took place. But the four notable horns here are, are the four generals that took over Alexander the Great's empire. Now verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of a sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice, and he cast truth down to the ground, And he did this all and prospered. Here we have in 170 BC, this would be between, you know, the Old Testament and the New, um, of the line of uh, Seleucus. So you have Seleucus, Antiochus, but then you have Antioch Epiphanes, and he's the guy that goes in and gives us a foreshadow of what's going to be with the Antichrist when he goes into the temple with an image of himself and declares himself to be God. Now, as we teach through the Bible, you need to be aware of the similarities that are taking place here. Let me give you another example. We have Elijah in the Old Testament. And um, he tells Ahab, look, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. It's not going to rain until I say so. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Now we have Elijah appearing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're having a powwow up there with Peter, James, and John. And I believe it's nothing more than a staff meeting of what's going to take place in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, where we have Again, the last verse of the Old Testament says, I'm going to send you, Elijah, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So who arrives right on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation? Elijah. How long is his ministry? Three and a half years. 
Revelation 7 verse 1 says that the Lord caused the wind not to blow. He took the four, uh, four angels and he stopped the wind from blowing, which stops the water cycle. And that's exactly what's going to happen during the first three and a half years. After three and a half years, we read in Revelation 11 that, that Elijah has the power to not have it rain for that period of time. Now, why do I even bring that up? Because if it happened before, <laughs> and you're talking to the average person on the street, they're going to say, you're crazy. And I'm going to say, no, I'm not crazy. I even believe in something weirder than that. I believe any moment I could disappear right in front of your eyes. In a moment, a twinkling of an eye, I chew on that for a while. And they're going to say, you're really crazy. And I'm going to say, no, it happened before. Enoch walked with God, and he wasn't, for God took him. What's your point, Dwight? The Lord seems to be laying a pattern of it happening before so that when he says it's going to happen again, we're going to go, that's nothing new. Elijah did the same thing with Ahab for exactly three and a half years. Well, that's nothing new, the rapture. He did that with, with Enoch. And now we're reading about the pivotal, what's a good word for it? The, the pinnacle marker of the great tribulation right in the middle. Everything is divided up in half. Three and a half years, times, times, half a times, 1,260 days, 42 months. Something in the middle is extremely significant in teaching the book of Revelation. What is it? Here's a picture of it here. Here, of the line of Seleucus, one of the, from one of the generals of Alexander the Great, is an event where a man goes into the Holy of Holies. We don't know for sure. Some say he, he butchered a pig on the altar, which can't get more... Uh, blasphemous than that to a Jewish person. And um, here they call it the daily sacrifice was taken away. Why? Because this guy goes in and defiles the temple. And it's defiled for a period of time. Pick it up in verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be according to concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, which we call the abomination of desolation, which Daniel also talked about, um, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Um, false doctrine has come out of this. I think it's the Seventh-day Adventists say that, that that would have taken place in 1914. And, and a, lot of, a lot of them said, this is it. They, even though the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour, they set a day and they set an hour, and that day came and that day went. And um, what we have in view here is in 166 B.C., uh, I'm going now from Antioch Epiphanes, who causes this event. Now they're asking the question, how long before they're going to be using the, the temple again? In 166 B.C., uh, Matthias, a priest of Judah, raised a revolt against Syria. This is the beginning of the Maccabean period, 
Probably the nation of Israel has never, never suffered more than during this era. Uh, they were even more heroic than during this uh, interval. The main guy was uh, Judas Maccabeus, whose name means the hammer, was the leader who organized the revolt. And so during this period of time, from the time that this abomination of desolation took place, again, it's a picture. This really happened. But I believe it happened so that when we talk about this event happening in the future, the way Daniel does, about the Antichrist breaking the covenant in the middle of the week, Daniel 9, that uh, I can say, I don't have a problem with that because it's happened before. And um, the time before they would have sacrificed in the temple again is literal days, not years. 2,300 days in the sanctuary will be cleansed. All right, that was about 164, 65, 66, somewhere in that period of time. Now, let's jump ahead to 63 B.C. This is when... We've gone from Babylon, Medo-Persian, Grecian. Now we have the rise of the Roman Empire. The the Romans took Jerusalem and the people of Israel passed under the leadership of a new world power. There has not been a world-dominating government since the Roman Empire. But when you read Daniel closely, this last empire is going to have ten toes. And it's going to be an extension of the original. And that also comes from Daniel chapter 9. So there will be one more world government. And um, matter of fact, we're going to be, I'm in contact with a guy right now who um, uh, that's the class that he was teaching until he retired. Just like Gary Kaw. Uh, wrote the book in 1991, En Route to Global Occupation. He worked for the government in Indiana, and he just saw it. He was a businessman who traveled, and he saw it back in 91, um, headed towards a one-world government. And, um, you know, (laughs) the news reports about everything except what's news. (laughs) And if they would speak about what's really happening from a biblical perspective, the only place that you're going to get a biblical perspective on what is going to happen in our lifetime is churches that will still teach the book of Daniel, will still teach the book of Revelation. And if you, if you study it over and over again, all the pieces fit together just like a glove, perfectly. And nothing's going to stop it from happening. And I think the Lord in his wisdom says the stuff that was really going to stagger them, I think I'll let it happen once before in history. So when they have to think about it happening in the future, you go, I have a problem with that. happened before. It's going to happen again. And so the Romans come along, and um, um, there's a prophecy that says the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And um, Judah was self-sufficient until the Romans came along. And what they did is they put in their own man uh, in 40 B.C. 
the Roman Senate appointed Herod. You know that King Herod is not a Jew? He was not elected by the Jewish people. He was an Edomite. He was not Jewish. And so they did not have the scepter. When you have the scepter, what do you have? You have the authority. You have power. You have, um, they're talking today on the news, this, this kid that killed all the people in Florida. Um, he says he'll come clean and admit it all. Just don't give me the death penalty. Well, in order to make a statement like that, what do you have to have? You have to have the scepter that has the authority to have a death penalty. In Israel's time, when the Romans were there, they did not have the scepter. They had to go to Pilate when they wanted to kill Jesus, remember? They didn't have the authority. And by the way, execution was not the cross. Execution uh, from Israel's perspective was always stoning. That was the way they uh, um, followed through with, with capital punishment. And they were strict about it. You didn't talk back to mom and dad. And um, there were the, the law was followed, and it was it was carried out. So now we have Herod. Um, I can't tell you how bad this guy is. We talk about gangs, and we talk about bad groups, but nobody had anything up on Herod. Nobody wanted to be a friend of Herod because he killed wives, sons, brothers. Anybody that he thought was a threat. One thing he had going for him, he was a a great builder. He started, um, when, let me just think, when did he start the temple? In 19 BC, the construction of the Herodian temple was begun. And um, it was still going on during the time of the Lord. And... um, that's why Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. You are crazy. They've been working on this thing since 19 B.C. And they thought they were talking about the temple, but of course we know he was talking about the temple of his, his body. So the Lord, as we begin, Matthew comes along right about the time, about 4 B.C., when the Lord was born in um, Bethlehem. Now, a lot of changes culturally from the time of the book of Malachi until the time of the Lord's coming, there was radical changes in the internal life of the nation of Israel. Uh, They went from a a time of idolatry. uh, From one extreme, they became extremely legalistic in their in the, the way they kept the law. The law became an idol to them. Uh, the classic language of Hebrew gave way to Aramaic in everyday speech. Jesus did not speak Hebrew. Uh, if you went to synagogue, you would speak Hebrew. Uh, although the Hebrew was retained uh, for their, their synagogues, there really weren't synagogues until this period of time. It was always, it was always the temple. The synagogues eventually came up during this period of time, became an essential part of of the lifestyle. As far as leadership, it was probably broken up into four different groups. By far and away, the most 
dominant and the strictest were called the Pharisees. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Um, They were the dominant party and they were the strictest in keeping the laws. Uh, Second and next to them would be the Sadducees. They were probably made up of the wealthier, higher social-minded class who didn't want anything to do with tradition. They were liberal in their theology. They rejected the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And when Paul found himself in a hard spot one day, when they they wanted to take him, he realized that the people that were after him, half of them were Pharisees and half of them were Sadducees. So he comes up and says, I just want you guys to know I'm a Pharisee. Because I believe in angels and the resurrection. Well, that split the crowd right in two. And the Pharisees said, Paul, he's not such a bad guy. But the Sadducees, they hated him all the more because they didn't believe in either one. They didn't believe in angels and and they didn't believe in the resurrection. And of course, the old joke is they didn't believe in the resurrection and that's why they are sad, you see. Yeah, it's this old, and I've been telling it for 50 years. And <laughs> But they were the second group of people that made up society during this time. And the reason I'm bringing it up is to show you the mental switch in thinking from idolatry to the Pharisees' legalism to another whole sect that would be the liberal, what we call the liberal mindset today. Their philosophy is let's eat, drink, and be married because tomorrow we're going to die. The third group that emerged during this 400 years would be the scribes. They were a group of uh, professional expounders of the law, stepping back from the days of Ezra. Uh, they were the hair splitters. They were more concerned with the letter of the law than with the spirit of the law. And the Lord would say to them, you know, you got it down, you're writing it down, but your heart, that's what's far from me. You're missing it. You're, 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 you're uh, splitting hairs over truth of what the scripture says, but the greatest scripture is thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. You know, I, my prayer is that we leave a Wednesday night Bible study or Sunday morning so we learn and our, our faith is increased. But it's like the greatest prophetic message ever given was given to Daniel. But before he got the message, Gabriel says to him, I just want you to know one thing that God wants you to know first before you get all his head knowledge. Daniel, God loves you so much. And he just wants you to know that. So if you get nothing out of the Bible study tonight, go out of here knowing that God loves you so much that he's going to tell you everything. He's not going to hold anything back. He says, I'm not going to call you... I'm not going to call you servants, but I'm going to call you friends. Because a master doesn't tell his servants what he's going to do, but a friend does. Got a good friend? You know everything about him. If you have a best friend, you know everything there is to know about that person. Why? Because he's your best friend. And so the Lord tells us, I'm going to lay it all out to my disciples. You're my friends, so I'm going to tell it all to you. So here we are getting ready to start the New Testament The scribes had head knowledge, no heart knowledge. The last group would be the Herodians. 
the, the Herodians were a party in the days of Jesus, and they were strictly politically opportunist. They sought to maintain the Herods on the throne because they wanted their part in power. And it, it would sort of be like, you know, uh, the Republicans um, in Congress wanting to keep Trump in, and the Democrats want him out. So the, the, that would sort of be like it was with the... Um, uh, the Herodians. Um, the Old Testament was uh, had gone was translated during this period of time, and two eighty five to two forty seven. So this is a major event that took place during the four hundred silent years. The Old Testament was translated into Greek from Hebrew in Alexandria, Egypt, during about two eighty five to two forty seven B.C. It was translated by six members from each of the 12 tribes, hence the name given to the translation was Septuagint, meaning 70. So you've heard of the the Septuagint and that um, um, interpretation. This translation was used by Paul, and our Lord apparently quoted from it also. So these are the major things that happened during that 400 period of time. The four Gospels um, are written to four different groups of people. They sort of cover the gamut of human emotion. And as we get into Matthew, Matthew was um, was a Jewish tax collector. And um, it was written by a Jew to the Jews and for the Jews. And... It was uh, first written in Hebrew, and it was uh, directed primarily to the religious men during that time. When we get to Mark, Mark was probably the guy, uh, when Jesus was betrayed, he was probably the young guy that a soldier grabbed his garment and he slipped away naked. And we think that's who Mark is. He probably did not write the book, but probably had it given to him by Peter. And my personal conviction that the the Gospel of Mark, uh, when you read it, it is uh, very fast-moving. It's to the point. Uh, The word that is used over and over again is immediately, and it has a real quick tone to it. And again, it was probably Peter's uh, Gospel dictated to Mark. Then we have Luke, which was written to the Greeks. Uh, Luke, of course, was a physician. And then the last one, which is a completion of of the full story of the life of Christ. You have to have all four of them. The Gospel of John. John is different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic Gospels because they're similar. I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about the genealogy. And a blood curse, I hope, if I have enough time, and a blood curse that happened, unless you have Matthew's account and Luke's account, you won't be able to reconcile a curse that was placed upon Jeconiah in the Old Testament. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But John um, is different because he chooses to write about Jesus being God. He starts with it, and he ends with it. 
And that's all I'm going to say about that now, because we'll be going through those chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And my golly, we made it to, I didn't know if we'd get this far tonight, but we did. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, and uh, let's see how far we can get. You might think the genealogies have a lot of names and they're going to be boring. We'll be finding, showing you just how unboring they are this Sunday when I take my text from it. But uh, chapter 1 um, deals with, um, up to verse 17, uh, the genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So in verses 1 through 6, we're going to have Abraham, beginning with Abraham, and going to David. If you're taking notes from verse 7 to 11, it's going to be from King Solomon to the Babylonian captivity. You see why it's important to study the Old Testament? If we didn't study the Old Testament, you would have no idea the Babylonian what. (laughs) So that's 7 through 11. And then in chapters 12 through 17, we have the genealogy from the Babylonian captivity to Joseph uh, the carpenter. Verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab, and Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Solomon, and Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon, and doesn't call her Bathsheba here, interesting, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. What I'll point out here and tease you just with a little bit is in the first six verses, we have four women that are mentioned that have extremely interesting stories. And they are extremely interesting people just within himself. As we get to uh, verse 7, we'll take uh, 7 through 11 now. Solomon begot Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, and jumping Jehoshaphat begot, oh, that's not in there, just Jehoshaphat, begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. He was the worst of the worst. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah was one of the best of the best. Josiah begot Jeconiah. And this is where we're going to come back to in just a little bit because this is where the blood curse comes in. And his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. So from verses 7 through 11, we have Solomon to the Babylonian captivity. And I'm thinking here, is this where I want to No, I'm going to finish this out. We're going to come back and talk about the blood curse. Let's pick it up um, with verses um, 8 up to verse 17. 
So verse 12, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheatel, and Sheatel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abib, Abib, and Abib begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Elalud, and Elalud begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot uh, Methan, and Methan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David unto the captivity in Babylon, 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. God is the God of order and numbers. And let's go back to verse 11. And... We read here about Jeconiah. And I'm going to have you turn um, to Jeremiah chapter 22. I'm going to talk about a curse that was placed upon this man. Jeremiah 22, picking it up in verse 24. This guy could be called Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, or Kerniah. All of them are the same guy. He would have been one of the last uh, kings in in reigning. So in verse 24, because of his wickedness, it says, As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, but he's also called Jehoiachin, and... um, but in uh, Matthew, um, in Matthew, he is called. I'm going to go back and make sure I pronounce it correctly. He is called Jeconiah. I will give, verse 25, I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those who face your fear and the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. And so I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land which they desired to return, they shall not return. In this man, Kaniah is despised, broken, idle. Is he a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out and his descendants and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. For thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. For none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. And all of a sudden we have a problem. Because God put a curse on the sky. The problem is, God made a promise to David. David, it's going to be through your descendants, and this is one of them right here, 
that I'm going to establish your kingdom, that it's going to be forever, that your descendants, and this is one of them right here, is, is going to establish the, the kingdom. We have a problem. Because, because of this, we call it the blood curse, he's going to go childless. Now, in order to perpetuate your name and your lineage, you're going to have to keep having boys in order for that to take place. The answer to this dilemma is important to have not only the account that we have in Matthew. Let's just go back to Matthew at this point again and read it. Because we read here in verse 11, Josiah begot Jehoiakim and his brothers about the time they were carried away to, to Babylon. But this is when the curse came. So this king here um, is childless. Now, Joseph is in this line. You see, Joseph uh, is in this line, but Joseph is not the natural father of Jesus. This is one of the most remarkable facts in the scriptures, and Matthew is trying to make it clear to us that Joseph gave to Jesus the title, the legal title, to the throne of David because Joseph was the husband of Mary, who was the one who bore Jesus. Jesus Christ is not the seed of Joseph, nor is he the seed of Jeconiah. But both Joseph and Mary had to be from the line of David, and they were, though two different lines from two different sons of David. So how does the Lord get around the problem of the curse? He has two lines. We'll find when we go to Luke, and we're going to go there next, that Mary's line comes from David, but it goes to his son Nathan, and there's a split. Joseph's line comes through the royal line through Solomon. So Joseph and Mary both had to go to Bethlehem uh, to be enrolled for taxation because they were both of the line of David. Let's flip over to the Gospel of Luke. Okay, verse 23. And Jesus himself began his ministry at the age of 30 years uh, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, And um, we have um, two different lines, thus avoiding the blood curse and the Lord still being able to put the Lord as the lion of the tribe of Judah and maintain, um, uh, actually making its way around what we would call the blood curse. All right, let's go back to Matthew because my time is running out and I really would like to get through two. We find um, the birth of Christ now in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. In those days, Marriages were arranged. Um, by the way, the Christians still do this in India today. They're, they've arranged marriage. And um, I remember asking one brother one time, well, what do you think about that? 
And he just, I remember talking to this one brother, and, I, and I just, he said, oh, I, I just hope Dad picks a pretty one. <laughs> that was his answer. Because they have no say in it. They figure you're too immature, and they want to make sure that they're spiritually brought up in godly homes. So betrothal, don't get me wrong, this is as binding as marriage itself. And um, if you broke a betrothal, if you were betrothed, it was like almost like as powerful as a, as a divorce. Then Joseph, in verse 19, her husband, being a just man, oh, just wait, verse 18, they were betrothed. Uh, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, being her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make a public example was minded to put her away secretly. So here, you got to have a lot of respect for Joseph. What do you do when your girlfriend comes home and, and um, you're her boyfriend and she said, um, honey, I'm pregnant. But really, it, it just, just happened. I just found myself pregnant one day. Well, what do you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, but he doesn't, he's not buying this, not for a second. But he doesn't want her to commit the penalty and the um, disgrace that goes along with it. Because the penalty for adultery is what? Stoning. Go with me to John chapter 8, verse 41. Let me just tell you that this was not a secret in Nazareth. John chapter 8, when it gets heated between the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're accusing him of being possessed by a devil, and, and he says, who do you guys think you are just because you're seed of Abraham? God can make stones to be seeds of Abraham. You guys are nothing. The rhetoric is getting hot and heavy. And uh, this was supposed to be a zinger to Jesus in verse 41. Okay, Jesus said, you do the deeds of your father. And then they said to them, we were not born of fornication. Ooh, the word had gotten out. Not only out of Nazareth, but these guys knew about it too. The word was out about Jesus. We have one father, God. And so the implication there is that she she had Jesus out of wedlock. And that's exactly what they're saying. What's your point? It's no secret. Even though he did the honorable thing, uh, it was still common knowledge. Verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take uh, to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying. Now, the next verse I'm going to read, and one of the main points that we've been making since we've been studying all of the Old Testament, and now we're in the first chapter of the New Testament is the importance of teaching Bible prophecy. In this 
chapter 1 and chapter 2, we are going to have four prophecies fulfilled. And I don't want to skip over this lightly. So what I'm going to do is deal with this one tonight. I wanted to do chapter 2 also, uh, because the other three Old Testament prophecies are going to be in chapter 2. But gang, this is what puts meat on your bones when you're talking to people about uh, the inerrancy of the word of God. Well, why do you say that? Anybody could have written that Bible. No, anybody couldn't. All scripture is given by divine inspiration by God. Forty authors, over 1,500 men with one... I don't want to give away too much of Sunday's Bible study. Scarlet cord that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And we find it here in our study on Sunday. But here is the one from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The first prophecy in the book of Matthew in the New Testament is telling us that this child born is none other than God in the flesh. And Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. In other words, they had no sexual relationship until after Jesus was born. In Roman Catholicism, they say that uh, Mary was perpetually a virgin, and she had no brothers and sisters. Sure he did. And the Bible even calls them by name. Brothers and sisters, plural. And none of them believed that he was the Son of God until after the resurrection. Now, I feel like preaching, and I'm already past my time, so what am I going to do? I have to quit here, and uh, except to say that In chapters 1 and chapter 2, that the Word of God is a book about prophecy. And it begins in Genesis, and it goes all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. I'm looking forward to the New Testament. I'm looking forward to get into details of where these prophecies come from and how they tie into. There's no What I want to do right now, there's no way I can with the time that we have. So we we um, it's a good thing we called it an introduction because earlier in the day I said oh just do Matthew one two and three and then I thought that's maybe not quite such a good idea let's call it an introduction to Matthew better idea let's stand and we'll pray Lord we thank you as we be get to take a good look of a lot of what Daniel talked about that happened that he foretold between the end of the book of Malachi and the birth that we read about here in the first prophecy in the New Testament is that he would be born by the Holy Spirit and your name would be called Jesus or Emmanuel, which in the translation means God 
with us or God with man. Thank you, Lord, that we're not always conscious when you said you'll never leave us or forsake us. But you, when you did come and the last words to the disciples were, Lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. Thank you for your promise because we know you can't lie. And we take that hope and that promise with us tonight as we leave. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.